The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 212 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all the opinions expressed this show on my own, that I'm a president of past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence and we're privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be treated as legal or financial advice. Well, I hope you enjoyed my boy Chris Hetner on the show last week. It was uh, fun to chat SEC proposed rules around, um, you know, what's going to happen with mandatory cybersecurity disclosures. But boy, you got to, you know, hope you enjoyed that one. But man, you got to buckle your seatbelt for tonight. I got the cybersecurity investor and entrepreneur, Joe Loomis, joining me on the show tonight. Joe Loomis is a cybersecurity investor and entrepreneur who enjoys solving difficult problems and being one of the first out of the gate. He is the pioneer of the SOAR industry and holds patents on the automated cyber threat mitigation coordination and real-time deployment of incident response roadmaps. He's dedicated the focus on the intersection of cybersecurity and crime has been his lifelong passion. And he's dedicated his life to solving complex technical and logistical problems in the digital world. He's been featured on international magazines and TV channels, including Bloomberg, CNBC, CNN, and Fox. He's a successful entrepreneur and pays it forward every chance he gets. It's my pleasure to introduce cybersecurity investor and entrepreneur, my buddy, Joe Loomis. Joe, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, brother. It's good to catch up, man. It's been a minute. So glad. Yeah. So look, man, I know you've been chilling because you've been, you know, you, you had a huge pop in your last gig. So I know you <laughs> probably got something brewing now as you're just waiting to deal with that. You got all stuff going on. But look, man, I'd I love for the audience to just get a little bit of your background. I'm fascinated with your journey. Maybe just hit them a little bit with your experience, kind of what brought you up in, you know, as a cybersecurity investor and entrepreneur and, and some of the things you've learned throughout the way. Yeah, sure. So my my cyber well, my cyber stuff started actually from the retail side. I start in college. I started an online retailer. Uh, believe it or not, selling car stereos on the internet. This is early. This is pre eBay uh, and any kind of e commerce. So um, you know, as that kind of market grew up, I learned a lot um, that made me really think that. Um, you know, there's a bigger play out here. And so what I'm, what I've really, what I did was I, I really understood online retailing and I understood how people sell online, how people buy online. This is really early stage stuff. So it was before anything was like even forged, forged in like, you know, in stone. And when I sold that company, I sold it after I got out of college. I sold it to a, a larger online car stereo retailer because back in the early 2000s, car stereo was really a big thing. It was like everybody had a system in their car. It was kind of a hot thing to have. And online pricing kind of undercut the online, uh, the, the, the brick and mortar retailer. So this became a real big problem. So when I, believe it or not, I, I finished uh, school and I went to work for a car audio manufacturer. People probably have heard of uh, Rockford Fosgate. So I actually was part of their R&D team. So we we're building really cool kick-ass car audio stuff. And when I was uh, in the industry, 
the, some of these manufacturers came to me because they knew I kind of was an internet guy. This is again, before like websites and email and IT. I mean, we're talking really early pre-email days. People came to me and said, hey, I got a, a problem with people selling our stuff on the internet and we don't know where they're getting it. It's called gray market distribution. And, and, and some, there's some issues with counterfeits. And so this was where I kind of pivoted into cyber crime. This is again, way before cybersecurity even existed. So I started a company called Net Enforcers and people used to nickname us as like web busters. And we were like the ghostbusters of web. <laughs> um, totally funny story. There's a lot of funny stories in these early pre-internet days. And so I was working with uh, large, First, I started working with like just car audio manufacturers, right? They had problems with people selling their stuff all over the internet, which is funny because it's what I started out doing in college. So I exactly knew the game. <laughs> and so I was basically out to stop the guys that I was, I was one of them. It was like good, you know, bad guy turned good. So I helped, I, so with Net Enforcers, I left Rockford Fosgate and we did all of the online monitoring for the brands on the e-commerce outlets. So eBay, Yahoo Auctions, Bid to Buy, all these early, early auction sites where there was, uh, it wasn't even, Google AdWords wasn't even around. Like there was, this is all pre-early stuff. So we were shutting down auctions using the Copyright Act from 1998 called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So when people were using pictures from the manufacturer's website, they would be in copyright infringement. So it's a crazy story. So we're able to pull down the auctions through copyright infringements. Then there were some trademark abilities. We were basically like uh, hunters, you could say, legal enforcement for how to control and protect brand. It was the early days of brand protection. And so that became a real big viral hit. Like I bootstrapped Net, Enfor or, sorry, yeah, Net Enforcers from $300 to grossing over a million dollars in profit a year. And this is after all expenses. And we, we dominated not only car audio, but we were then working with pharmaceutical companies where they were having problems with counterfeit Viagra, narcotics being sold on the internet, like controlled substances like Oxycontin, all this stuff. So we were working with FBI and DEA before FBI and DEA even had a cyber division. So we would find all of the bad, like illicit activity on the web. Mostly it was organized crime. It could be some guy trying to, you know, create a little bit of a crime ring or a hustle. Some of it was doctors doing it, believe it or not, with illegal scripts on the internet. And we would, <laughs> we would build up the cases and work with law enforcement to basically start to stop this illegal activity. Like mostly it was because people were consuming a lot of these medications and they were dying from it. So it was, we were trying to do kind of a better good besides just the policing, you know, commerce. So it, it really spread into this kind of brand protection craze. And that's kind of how it all took off. And then brand protection, there, there's still like three or four more companies started and popped up. One was called Mark Monitor. Um, another one was called, um, I, can't, I think it was Cyvalence, who was out of Virginia. And so, um, you know, and then I sold that in 2007 um, to a company that wanted to do identity theft protection. They were a publicly traded company. Um, and then I... Uh, I was sitting around and I said, you know, I, I met a couple of VCs when I was building Net Enforcers because it was really profitable and, and I had no outside funding. 
And so I, I uh, was introduced to Ted Schlein when I was building Net Enforcers and it was doing really well. Ted Schlein, people know in cyber, is pretty much the gangster of, of investments working at Kleiner Perkins. And Ted and I met before cyber was even big. And I went back to Ted and I said, Ted, I, my father was a fire chief and I grew up on a fire truck. And I said, I think cybersecurity and incident response is going to be the next big thing. And Ted said, I just made a $20 million investment in a company called Mandiant. And he says, I want you to talk to this really kid, this really hotshot cyber guy called Kevin Mandia. And he's like, I want you to run the idea by him. And I'm like, okay, I've never heard of Kevin before. I was like, you know, sure. He seems to be a friend of Ted's and an investment that he believes in. So I fly out to Alexandria. I go and meet with Kevin and Travis Reese and I think it was uh, uh, Bill, um, uh, or no, Rich. I can't remember Rich's last name, but he was at GE for a long time. Um, um, and he and I ran the idea by him. I said, listen, I want to build an incident response platform. Are you the kind of incident response guys? I want to build a platform. And he says, I love the idea. You know, are you interested in potentially partnering? And we, of course, we discussed. And you know, I was still early. Remember, I'm pre-product. I'm pre-team. I'm really just kind of scoping yeah, it. I was on OSI. <laughs> Correct. I mean, this is early, early days, man. This is Kevin had only had angel investment money prior to Ted Schlein. Um, and it was only him and maybe 50 people at Mandiant if he was lucky. And so we built a friendship and I um, I decided to build CyberSpawns, you know, independently because I'll be honest with you, it was one of my first lessons in buildings.coms is I was early. Shockingly, while I had validation of the market leaders in incident response, the on the consulting and on the on the firefighting side, I didn't have the validation and belief in the customer side. Yep. Everybody back then thought buying firewalls would prevent a cyber attack. That was kind of their mindset back then. It was the old Dave DeWalt days of, if you buy FireEye, you won't get breached. And I don't know if anybody remembers those marketing campaigns, but that was how FireEye was built. And so I was real early in the days of, of kind of how incident response was gonna get handled. And it took three hard years of, of really trying to, find, <coughs> excuse me, try to find a customer and to try to find, uh, you're basically building the first of anything. No one had ever built this. So try to wrap your head around trying to build the first car, but never seeing a car before in your life. That is not easy to do. A lot of iterations, a lot of mistakes, a lot of pissed off customers, a lot of building something you just don't know. And that's where you got to appreciate competition. Competition accelerates innovation. And trust me, if you've got an idea that no one else has ever done, I'd be more worried about that than I would be about having a competitor in the same category. Take it from a guy that was three years early and which is now a multi-billion dollar category called security orchestration, which security orchestration, I invented on the patent owner of the patent called real-time incident response. Uh, it was before orchestration was labeled by Gartner. And it would, how orchestration was born was, is when we built the incident response platform, a customer said, can we actually automatically create a ticket in a case without having to manually create a ticket? Can I have my SIM actually trigger a case you know, creation? That was the first integration in security orchestration, which was between Splunk and CyberSpawns. 
Splunk was the only SIM product on the market at the time that had an API. Honestly, if you don't build a product with an API today, you're kind of a dinosaur. Now it's kind of cut standard, but I was building an API product that there was no APIs that existed. So first it started with integration with cyber uh, SIM, you know, and then people said, okay, well, what if I want to enrich that alert with threat intelligence? Can you integrate with her threat intelligence, threat intelligence provider? And I said, we can try, but you got to remember this was, this was during the days of people were not good about cooperating with each other. And there cyber was no company, tip or anything. Like there was no. Like, yeah, yeah, no, there, no one was this actually. Is, this was early. This is before threat stream. If anybody's a gangster and knows that, an OG who knows what that was, <laughs> that's before Anomaly. That's Greg Martin. Um, that, you know, this, like, this was early, early, early day stuff. And so when, and back then, cyber companies were not very cooperative with each other. It was a very hush, hush, very competitive space. So we're a company out building an instant response platform. And we're saying, hey, we want to integrate with you. And we want to take alerts and we want to enrich them with threat intelligence. We want to connect to the firewall. We want to block that IP address. And you, we got a lot of resistance from the vendors. I mean, Vendor, there was no vendor management or alliance, you know, VP of alliances. We're, this was all innovative, like early state stuff. And that's how orchestration was built. It basically started one integration at a time. Uh, and then Phantom came along, uh, I think around 2014. We started in 2011. So there's my three years of pain. Phantom came around and I'm actually grateful for Oliver uh, Friedrichs because he's a smart guy. You know, he focused solely on the orchestration side versus the incident management side. A little bit of irony to this story is that Oliver had to build case management into his orchestration because everybody valued case management with orchestration, but with but, but they didn't value orchestration without it. Man, I so it's kind of like, I actually think before we go to a break, I actually think people think it's the other way around now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, now automation is becoming more dependent than, uh, than, than case management. You're absolutely right, because you're now API scripting with Sentinel-1. I mean, with Sentinel out of Microsoft, they've got automation scripts for cloud now. I mean, Amazon's got their, their uh, guard duty scripting engine. So I think you're right. I think Oliver was early in just letting uh, automation and innovation and orchestration lead, whereas case management was the kind of beginning, the beginning of it all. Man, I, I'm loving this, man. I appreciate you digging into this stuff. Crazy story, man. I could write a book about it. It's totally crazy madness. I love it. I Look, I can't wait to I can't wait to read it when it comes out one day. But we got a transition to yeah. break. Hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics for guests, Please email George directly at george.readus at tf7radio.com. That's george.readus at tf7. That's number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause some quick messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back with cybersecurity investor and entrepreneur, Joe Loomis. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Tax Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. 
with forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with cybersecurity investor and entrepreneur, Joe Loomis. Joe, I'm loving this story, bro. Let's keep it rolling. Yeah, Yeah, so, so, you know, orchestration just started to pop, you know. Uh, You know, Phantom and CyberSpons were kind of leading the way. Demisto, you know, came to the market, you know, saw a need. There's a big enough market for multiple players. You know, and everybody just started hustling. And then you started to see kind of this traction where, you know, big companies were were really seeing the value of having that kind of capability. And then, uh, you know, and then the exits took place. You know, all three of us got taken out. Um, there's still, you know, vendors popping up for security orchestration. Uh, you know, I think it's a it's a space to, that's going to change over time. Like to back to your point, Andy, that that you know, automation is going to now lead beyond the case management side of things. And I think the, I think the, the ability to manage APIs and integrate between products, data sets, authentication is going to kind of lead how it is. So, you know, I took a, I took a break after uh, we sold the Fortinet. 
I helped integrate the company. Um, the company's uh, CyberSvance has got like a thousand plus customers. It's now called Fortisor. Uh, it's it's part of the uh, Fortinet, you know, firewall package process, just like Palo Alto's, you know, whole package XOR, XOR stuff. And so now I've been, uh, you know, I'm kind of cooking on something new, something that I'm more a little different space, but you know, same area of competency where. Definitely going to focus on the ability to integrate and APIs. Um, I think SOAR is, you know, kind of been there and done that for me. I don't think I would go back into that space. Uh, uh, I, I'm happy to help out a vendor here and there, but uh, it's it's the appeal of building something and inventing that first or, or be one of the first uh, to follow my own advice. I, I wouldn't go into a space that didn't have competitors, but it's, I think what cyber is happening now is there's a lot of overlap. You know, there's not a lot of direct competition, but there's a lot of like, you know, uh, you know, partial integrate, partial comp competition between products. So that's where I think cyber is becoming a little saturated in the, the kind of dilutedness of it. But I, I've got something that I'm cooking up that you'll hear about soon that'll come out of stealth. Um, just, you know, circulating it amongst uh, enterprise customers, talking to some security leaders like yourself. Um, you know, calling on friends in the right places, happy customers from the past saying, hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. And, you know, and then after you get kind of that validation from the customer's perspective, then, you know, you start, you start putting, you know, hands to, to keyboard and start, you know, kind of drumming up some code, et cetera. But anyway, that's where I'm at, you know, but let's talk a little bit about the industry if you want. Yeah, man. Look, I, I love it. Before, before we get into that, though, I'd love, I'd love to dive into one more thing. And I, and I think sure. a big point that you hit on is customers need and, and you know, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, you know, they want to they want to really take that time to get to know what's the problem they're solving. Right. And so it sounds like what I heard from you to kind of sum it up was you, you were innovative. You saw something where the market was going. You were you were basically skating to where the puck was going to be before people were even hitting, you know, hitting. Yeah, and, definitely time machine time for sure. Yeah, and so now I think you're kind of saying, look, man, like now I want to get that market validation first so I don't live through the three years of pain ever again. Yeah. Like, it's a matching totally. process. Like, you know, when, when you start a new company now compared to back then, like, okay, we got that lesson learned, but like, what are you doing differently <laughs> in terms of like funding and, you know, building the company structure like how are you approaching starting the company differently like what other lessons learned did you have from like when back in the day Tony? yeah great question great innovation I, another book i could write on how to how to build a startup in, in 2022 um i'd say before you know there's a couple leg ups that you can have being a proven you know person with a team and in and, and, and connections you know if if you if you've got that track record it gets easier unfortunately the more you do it I guess like everything in life, but you know, from a startup perspective, what I'm doing different this time around is, uh, aside from the customer validation, is the right kind of funding model, right? A lot of people think just cash is cash, but that is not the case when it comes to building an enterprise company. It's sometimes the first capital in could it could pave and dictate the rest of the story for the rest for the company um, to the end. Uh, it could be a good thing and it could be a bad thing. Sometimes the first term sheet that you get could be the death sentence for the company five years later. 
Uh, it you really have to carefully make your moves in the beginning more so and then then later it's almost like you want to be less risk adverse in the beginning versus later because the right kind of investors are just as important as the right idea because a good idea with bad investors that don't help you create that momentum and build that brand and help build you that team is gonna, it, it, could, it, could, it could make way for a competitor to come along and beat you to market with the right investor. So, so you gotta be weary of the first capital in. That's the, really the gist of it all. Then when, once you've got the idea figured out, then you validate the capital that you wanna bring in. You know, who, can, who have they invested in before? What are their exits look like? How are they gonna help, you know, in specific key relationships, whether it's early customers, or helping build a management team out. All that plays into it, right? Then, then the third trifecta, so to speak, is early MVP customers. You really gotta have the relationships with the customers that will help you build the product and are that have thick skin. You can't build, you can't, you can't have your first, you know, two customers that are the perfectionist and don't have a lot of patience, so to speak. Don't want to have, don't, they're, they're not the innovative customers. They're the ones that they just want to buy it to use it and they don't really boxes. care about it. Yeah, they're checking boxes, yeah. doing what everybody else is doing. They're not spending any time trying to move this. They're not going to help you with feature functionality, what, what, with your roadmap. They're not going to help you with the trials and tribulations of bugs and early product failures and, and crashes and when the product's unstable. So your first three customers are equally just as important as your investors, as well as the idea. So that's where sometimes, like you said, having a little bit of a track record, you have some of those, or, you know, listen, if you don't have an entrepreneur track record and you've never had an exit, <clears throat> become friends with someone that has. You know, start networking, you know, one degree, one, one degree referrals are not bad. You know I mean? They still can help you a lot. You don't have to be directly connected to everybody that's going to help you. You could, if you've got a really tight early investor, like say an angel investor before you go venture capital, you know, that angel investor might've had an exit under their belt like myself and who could introduce you to the early MVP customers or who can introduce you to the early venture capital guys that you want to help you with your funding path. So whether you've got the track record in the, in the kind of Rolodex or you don't, I, w I always told everybody there's, there's two things that I would master before even understanding cybersecurity if you want to build a company, psychology and English. And I want to say, let me elaborate on that. The English side is the communication. If you can articulate, you know, either through something in writing or verbally, that is a very powerful uh, little tool in your utility box. If you can understand the psychology of the customer, as well as the investor, as well as the employee, you can build a team, you can get customers, and you can get investors. It's so it's shockingly that this industry is more psychology and communication, the ability to articulate well without rambling for 30 minutes and saying nothing, Sometimes people just want to know in two sentences what the fuck you do, how you're going to solve problems for them, and how much do you cost. If you go into these elaborate storytelling you know, sessions, sending them three novels and of, of emails and blasting them with attachments, you're not listening and understanding the psychology. You're going to fall on your face. 
and you're also not following the communication side. And this is why I think if you really want to master solving a problem before you even get to the problem to solve, you've got to be well equipped in both those sets. And honestly, I wasn't. You're talking to a guy that probably has a PhD in hard knocks that had to figure out the hard way of how to communicate and articulate well, how to have how to speak well. Go to a Toastmaster session if you keep saying um and you can't complete a sentence without stuttering or 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 saying something, you know, repeating yourself. You know, the other thing is is the psychology is is a lot more listening than than speaking. They always say in a deal the first person to speak loses. You know, sometimes just listening. There's a book that I always tell early entrepreneurs to get aside from the book Lean Startup, which is really great. It's from an early investor of mine, Steve Bennett, who start, uh, who helped take Intuit to the cloud with QuickBooks Online. Eric Dries started the book uh, called Lean Startup. It, for the most part, the book is about customer-driven iterations, listening to the customer, building features that the customer wants. But the book to build on the psychology is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. If you haven't read and mastered that book, you're going to fall on your face and you're going to learn the hard way like this jackass. And you're going to learn that if you don't master the EQ side of business, people are not going to listen to the IQ side of it. And that's where I think the psychology side of it really is important. That's why I'm going to tell Andy and everyone else that I know, you know, hey, get a copy of the book. I promise you it really helps in the sales model and it helps you to build connections that are authentic and real. It's, 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 you know, the book is, is, is written after Lincoln and how Lincoln led as a president, as well as a lawyer it talks about criticism, talks about employees, talks about how to build a team, you know, um, and to talk on one little topic prior is about team, how to build a team. You know, that is probably going to be one of the hardest things to do aside from right, finding the right capital and finding the right idea. You're talking to the guy that went through three early teams before finding the team that really we all meshed well together in cyber response in 2016, 2017 era. Building teams is about referrals. Don't ever trust anybody's resume or LinkedIn uh, to, as for, for what it's worth. It's only as good as what it's written on. You have to start building a team through referrals. And that goes back to the psychology of networking. Honestly, if I, you know, if I was to tell somebody, take a year just to go to every conference and meet as many people as possible. Don't go there trying to, to ask for anything. If anything, offer your help. Say, I'm only here just to get involved. I'm here to help out, make some referrals, network, that's it. That year of investment will save you years of heartache when it comes to hiring a team. Hey, does anybody know a good developer or CTO? You know, do you have any references? You know, all these engineers all talk to each other. You know, that's a very, it's a very cultural environment. They all, they all, so wanna, they all know if they don't want to work right. for you too. <laughs> Correct. That's exactly right. They all talk. Yeah. <laughs> you got to treat them well. You got to listen. Engineers are not, they're not necessarily always business people. They don't care about what the customer wants. They just like to build cool stuff. You have to align the analytics of the engineering mind with the personality of the end customer. And sometimes the customer using the product isn't an engineer, so they don't know how to launch rockets from this complicated console. You know, and that's why consoles got to be, they got to be easy to use. They got to be easy to implement. They got to be easy to understand. They almost got to be self, 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 self licking lollipops where it's so easy to use that you don't even have to have training. Right, you know, so that is understanding the customer. 
Yeah, so I, lo- I love this conversation, right? And, and look, I think like you're a great person to ask this question because you build tech, you know, that, that the engineers and the practitioners use on a daily basis at scale. So the question here is, how do we get the community, like the cybersecurity community to, to make the translation and be comfortable with talking in business context to the people that cut the checks, that fund them to buy the cool tools and build the cool tools they want to build, especially in the enterprise space? So, well, you got to, so my always argument is, is you got to remember you're competing for people's attention. So you're competing against everyone. Because if you've got, you know, if you're, if your customers are, you know, have a hundred vendors contacting them a day, and it could be vendors that everything from cloud to endpoint to firewalls to threat, it could be everything. You're now competing for their five minutes. So you've got to, to penetrate that space, you've got to, Face-to-face is always best, so you got to get your ass out street side, and you got to start going to the conferences and meeting people. Start listening to some panels. Emails are never going to work. Where introductions will work, that's back to the networking thing. If you want to get to a customer, go by way of someone that knows the customer personally, the decision maker. You know, um, it's a little bit of about being resourceful. You know, using your resources like your social media contacts, your LinkedIn's. Uh, looking at you know the the Cynet, you know community, what panels are going on, joining Cynet as a vendor, uh, talking to the community, you know the penetration to the customer and getting to the decision maker to write a check is going to be about relationship building, and those that can master the, the establishing trust pretty quickly, and then ex- being able to articulate your value proposition easily, are going to get the customer to buy. It's the people that kind of shoot out of cannon and just kind of shotgun everything and send blanket emails to everybody that are just the same email copy and pasted. And there's nothing particular in there in regards to specific to the person like, hey, you know, uh, so-and-so referred me or have, a re- have someone make an introduction first. I'd always say that's always going to go a lot further than, uh, than anyone else. And, you know, customers can be can cranky. They can be tired. Uh, they can be exhausted of just hearing the same thing over and over again. So you've got to think about what you can say in three sentences that could get someone's interest. And I'm still and getting emails. Like, I'm getting emails from salespeople talking about me at my at two companies ago. <laughs> like, hey, yeah. you know, two companies ago, I know you're probably still dealing with this problem. I'm like, bro, I don't even work there anymore. Like, you yeah, yeah. That's just the, that's just that lack of EQ where people they're trying the old numbers game. You know, like let's just let's 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 email a thousand people and try to get one reply. You know that that old that email blast day is just kind of coming on of like filling people's inboxes. If anything, it might get you blacklisted if you do that stuff. <clears throat> your emails will never make it to the inbox. You're trying to take me down this path earlier, and I, j- I jumped in with a different question, but I want to get your take on it, which is, you know, what, what are, what's the current state of the cyber industry right now? Like, what, what are the problems we need to solve like, going forward? I think cloud migration and people transitioning from, uh, from, you know, data. I think 2022, if you look at the Gardner report, is the first year that there's been more spending in cloud and CSPs, cloud security providers like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Oracle, et cetera. There's been more spending in that cloud environment than there has been in data centers. So that tells you something interesting. That tells you that cyber is now moving to more of a non-traditional infrastructure side where you're having to manage endpoints and, and server racks. 
you're now moving more into the the ether you know of of cloud virtualization the non-virtualization data sets that don't even have instances or server serverless data now you know i think that's where cyber is going i think i think we're about two or three years ahead for api security authentication i think that's going to become a major player similar to uh user authentication how products and data talks to each other and how they authenticate is going to be on the forefront. If I was if I was a guessing man on a time machine, that API security layer is going to be pretty big for in the years to come. Uh, and that I think that goes back to this to, to the kind of conversion of from the from the traditional server world to the virtual world. I think you're going to see that more and more cloud-based security products. Uh, specifically focusing on how the cloud is transforming and how it's utilizing data and like all these custom apps that people are using now, like, you know, like big banks, they have all these homegrown apps that they use applications and, you know, how those applications are determined for vulnerabilities and scanned and check their APIs and how they're authenticated. I think that's where security is going. I think it's security is moving. It's kind of the easy answer. It's moving to the cloud. And I think it's just, like I said, 2022, based on Gardner, is the first year that that the market has spent more on cloud uh, infrastructure as a service compared to the traditional data center stuff. Yeah, I appreciate it, brother. Well, hey, man, we, we got to take, take another short break to hear from our sponsors. Don't go away, though. We'll be right back with more from cybersecurity investor and entrepreneur, Joe Loomis. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Sinet S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with cybersecurity investor and entrepreneur, Joe Loomis. Well, hey, hey, brother, we're on the home stretch here, man. And, uh, you know, you've covered a lot of ground and I'd love this. I've been loving this, this, uh, this conversation, you know, but for you to have the level of success that you've had, you know, you, you've had to have not just been smart and savvy and, you know, work on communication, understand the psychology, like everything you talked about, but you also have had to been, have, must have been a great leader, right? You can't build multiple successful exits, you know, over long periods of time without, you know, really getting the leadership thing done right. And then, you know, taking the teams that you built and kind of having them follow you to go work on the next thing. Right. So, you know, yeah. I try to mark myself as like, the way I look about leadership for me is, well, the people that I've worked with before eventually want to come work with me somewhere down the road. And, you know, I know that that's happening with you. So I'd love to get your take on, you know, how you approach leadership and building culture um, to get everybody rallied around the mission and go execute and, and you know, have success. Yeah, leadership's an interesting thing because, you know, I was lucky uh, as a young guy. My dad was a natural leader. He was a, you know, we moved to a small town in Florida after I was born in New York. And my dad started the local fire department with his buddies. And he, he remained the fire chief of a volunteer fire department. Probably had 50 or so guys from our hometown. And, you know, I grew up watching this guy, you know, just lead people. It was kind of just kind of, you know kind of just following him around like a lost puppy dog. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you don't really realize what you're around until maybe later in life. And then I went into the military and that taught me a lot about leadership as well. So I think military service, it gives you good structure. Um, it gives you the ability to kind of appreciate leaders because you're, you know, you're being led by a lot of the people before you have the opportunity to um, become a leader yourself. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different types of personalities out there. You know, there's the leaders that are not technical and, you know, um, they surround themselves with uh, really, really amazingly smart people. Uh, and that's, that's, that's part of the magic is, you know, having no ego. I think it's okay to have an ego to some aspect, but I think keeping, you know, yourself in check in the mirror and knowing what you're good at and what you're bad at. You know, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. Surround yourself with smart people that can help and enable you. Sometimes it takes a leader to step back. Uh, shockingly, you know, people might not know this, but in cyber response, I, I stepped back as CEO and became CTO to help build the product so that I could focus more on the technical side of things in building the culture of the development side of cyber response. Because that's where I was needed most. 
you know, it didn't look right that a, a CEO was working with the customers on a day-to-day -day basis. You know what I mean? It it was too smallsy approach. The optics was not right. It didn't feel right. So I had to, I took a step back, honestly, just so I could get real, uh, get my hands dirty with the troops, and and it really paid out. Obviously, dividends because I, you know, we did really well, and it was the best move. I was the majority shareholder of the company. Uh, I did that on my own accord. Um, you know, and I was, you know, it takes a lot of humility to make those kind of decisions. I wasn't forced to do it. I wasn't kicked out of the position, et cetera. And I think culture is something that is becoming, I'll, I'll give you kind of a, a little bit of a secret weapon. That's something that's new that I'll do in my, um, in my next company that I just started doing uh, towards the tail end of CyberSpons. For all you guys that aren't Showtime fanatics on, on the television, uh, there's a show called Billions. Um, it's got about a guy named a Bobby Axelrod, and he's kind of a hedge fund guy. He's kind of a, a cowboy loose cannon. And inside of this hedge fund, where he's got a lot of high performers and high, you know, high pressure environment, he's got an actual psychologist and performance coach, which, believe it or not, at the tail end of CyberSpons, the last year of CyberSpons before we exited, I brought in a performance coach full time to help build the culture of the company. And they, that coach literally worked with every uh, everybody on the team in short sessions. We did group events. We built a culture of trust and loyalty. And you'd be amazed on how many offers that people would be getting from other companies that ultimately they stayed because of the loyal of, of the culture that we created. You know, having that, I would never build a company today without having someone in charge of culture and morale and, and keeping a heartbeat of the company in check. Because sometimes when you're CEO and you're out paving the way and you're trying to raise money and you're trying to get attention and you're doing all this crazy marketing, you know, you, you, can, only, you can only spread yourself so thin. Who's going to take care of the home, you know, the home team? Who's going to keep them motivated? Who's going to keep them, you know, excited about what's going on? And that, that's where that culture person comes in that's really critical. And I think that's part of that leadership is knowing, you know, I used to be really bad at managing down and I'd manage really well up, you know, and you'll find people that manage well down, but they don't manage well up. And what that means is I could manage my board of directors and my customers and my investors really well. But when it came to the day-to-day the -day with the, the engineer that you probably hadn't met or you know the the customer success person, or the HR person, or the finance guy. You know, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't really too emotionally available. I'll be honest with you. And it was something I learned, you know, in regards to being able to manage well down because it didn't come naturally to me. I was always kind of a type A, you know, go out front, you know, kick the door down kind of guy, kind of an alpha. And I, once I learned how to manage down in that culture person, who, by the way, had worked with me for the last 20 years in my other companies, I brought him in. He used to be my, CO, my COO on my last uh, startup before CyberSpawns. And he was just always a great, like, motivator, people person. And he became a life coach during our time apart. We had lost touch for probably eight years. And uh, he became a life coach, and he started coaching people and doing performance coaching, et cetera. And, you know, you got, you know, got all these certifications and I just said, Hey man, I want you to watch this series billions on Showtime and I want you to come and be Wendy. And that's the name of the character on the series. I was like, I want you to be my Wendy. I, you know, I'm kind of an ax rod. I'm kind of a cowboy. I'm a little, bra I can be, I can be brash at times. I can, I can be a little bit outspoken. 
was like, I need you to help me understand and help me manage and lead that kind of culture of loyalty. Because, you know, in cyber, it's real competitive, man. You know, the big guys are going to try to steal your team, you know, with doubling their salaries and giving them all kinds of incentives and all this stuff. And I think that that culture is is going to be your saving grace. And that's part of what's be a, a, a part of being an effective leader uh, in today's space is is really having a good culture um, and lead, leadership can be <laughs> I've been watching that series on, uh, on on Showtime as well about Uber and about how Uber was created. And I see the leadership that Travis was compared to, like, say, how other types of leaders there are, you know, like a Steve Jobs, et cetera. And, you know, you can see the varying differences between how different leadership roles can be, you know, and, and all the, and the mistakes that Travis made along the way. And he ultimately got kicked out of his own company, which wasn't probably a good ending, you know, and, and you can kind of see it coming if you watch the series. Also, like we crash, you know, the guys about WeWork. Yep. You could see the how in touch with the employees, you know, Adam was at WeWork, and how out of touch with the investors he was. So he managed well down, but he didn't manage well up, you know. And so, you know, he kind of lost his leadership while it was effective during certain stages of the company. It looks like to me that the company outgrew the leader. And sometimes that will happen. Sometimes the leader can't stay the leader the whole time. He's got to take a step back and say, hey, I need to bring in a CEO that can help me scale this in a public market on an IPO. Um, you know, not a, an early stage startup guy like myself who is scrappy. And, you know, I look at it as, you know, I'm kind of like a demolition derby guy. The minute the company becomes kind of like NASCAR, I'm kind of like out of it. I'm kind of like, eh. It's not really my thing. If things aren't crashing and flipping and going backwards and going all different ways in an uncontrolled way, I'm not really engaged. So, so I'm kind of a demolition derby type of startup guy. And the minute that gets to that scale where you're doing the NASCAR thing and you're just kind of churn, you're just burning and, and pumping and dumping customers and you're growing really exponentially, you know, a lot of leaders don't, you know, can't make the transformation. They, I think it comes with age. I think, honestly, when you get a scrappy guy and he, he gets into his 40s and he starts to slow down a little bit and he becomes kind of that different leader. You know, it's, it's kind of like how Mark Zuckerberg had to go to all those leadership courses because he was an introvert, you know, and he was leading a multi-billion dollar company, you know. But, but my prediction is if Mark hadn't had superpower, superpower voting shares like he had created from his early on, he probably would have been removed. Yeah. You know, so it's like those are part of those things where if you've got a unicorn on your hands where you've got, you know, superpower vote right, voting rights, you know, that can happen. It doesn't happen too much in cyber. It can be sometimes a little bit of a red flag for investors. So be careful of thinking that you can repeat consumer products compared to, uh, you know, cyber products, you know, enterprise business compared to a consumer product like Facebook or, or Uber, et cetera. And so, you know, that's, you know, that's, I think, where it all works is leadership changes over time, you know, and I think that that, uh, that you got to, you know, you got to, you got to be self-aware, you got to be able to say, hey, look at myself in the mirror and say, you know, can I do a good job today or do I need to bring someone else in? Um, you know, do, can I bring in a, a smarter person than me to help be my CTO or my chief revenue officer? Do I, you know, you don't have to have all the answers, you know? And so that's, that's my view on leadership is it's a, it's a very fluid, cerebral thing. And I think today uh, it's probably more important than say the militant days of like the, you know, the eighties 
in like the old GE days of like, you know, what did they say? Fire the bottom 10% or something like that rule. Remember? And they kept yeah, continually. Always, doing- always have your 5% ready. Right. It's like the thing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I think those days, I think people would never work for a company that had a culture like that now. You know what I mean? I think that there's been some evolution of, of where culture and leadership are count, like now they're more cohesive. And I think they're like the Jack Welsh days are just gone, dude. If you tried to build a company like Jack Welsh and that, that militant dictator, you know, screaming maniac, like the early Steve Jaw, uh, Steve, I'm sorry, Steve Ballmer at Microsoft, you know, he's throwing chairs through conference rooms and shit. Like, I just don't think that that shit would happen today. I don't think you would ever have a team that would follow you into the, into the trenches. If you, if that kind of leadership was today, I think there's been an evolution. No, you know, something you talked about real quick before we, before we got to finish up is the, you know, the coaching, man, I, I've actually used the coach and I've had the biggest breakthroughs in my career or the last couple of years with having a coach specifically to have that. And what I found was I was actually the biggest inhibitor of my own progress, you know, and I had to, had to become more self-aware around that. And, and I do, I've done what you talked about too, which is have a coach come in, meet with a team and the vulnerability that exists when you sit down and you recognize that the reason why that meeting wasn't successful was because, we didn't understand how to communicate with each other because we didn't truly understand each other's personality. Like yeah. all of a sudden you go, wait, that person wasn't being difficult. They just didn't consume the information because I didn't communicate it to them in a way that they can consume it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And all of a sudden, and so that when people let their guard down and commit to that process, man, the teams just start to gel and it's like, you get that bond. And next thing you know, you're right. You got teams forever. So look, bro, I, that goes back to my old psychology thing again, right? I mean, the psychology of understanding your your companions, your partners, your team. Not everybody's going to be your clone. They're not going to like everything you like. They're not going to think like you think. So, you know. I love it. Look, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much, brother. Hey, thanks so much, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. Don't forget to visit aliveshoes.com slash brand slash TF7 to get your own pair of TF7 sneakers. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.